Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Sunday's edition of History Hat. It's going to be fun today because um, I've just got my mates on because we're going to talk World War I aviation. We're just going to have a nice chat about pilots we're not going to compare aces because that's boring and silly but we are going to talk about aces we think you should know more about we're going to have a general chat about what they bought to aviation in world war one and we're going to talk about why we like them and stuff so first of all gary baines here gaza hello mate (laughs) i'm hearing you love this nickname i I love it yeah i make that clear on twitter (laughs) just a little bit uh josh levine is here hey josh Hello. I'm, so, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at Peter's bookshelf. Jesus. They're all his own books, though, Josh. That's all I've got, my own ones. <laughs> and yours, Josh. I, I mean, I, I've got a tiny selection here. I've, I've got Peter's. I've got a few Peter's up here. And I will read them one day. <laughs> so, yes, Peter Hart is here, in case you haven't figured. Peter, Petey Kids, oh. how's the diet going? It's going well, and it's very nice. I mean, I, I, I think both I and Gary felt we ought to apologise after last time when we made unfortunate references to both your appearance and your uh, slovenly attire, both you and Alina. Uh, but I see you've made a bit of an effort with that lovely posh skirt and that nice blouse that you're wearing. And it, it's nice to see, you know, that, that you've made an effort. I know. I've got makeup on and everything. Sorry, yeah, is this well, an episode of Bottom? No, this is... <laughs> <laughs> Right, anyway, let's let's not descend into waffling and abusing each other yet, because it will happen, because it's yeah. us. But let's talk about... Oh, let's start with an early one. People should know more about Lano Hawker. Agreed? Oh, agreed. Completely agree. Go on, yeah. Josh. Why? Um, I... Well, okay, so I, I, for me, the early part of the war, in many ways, is the most interesting from an aerial perspective because it's when they were making things up, so when they were developing things, they were trying things, which some worked, some didn't, and you can see so many things that were done later on, and even still done, which were tried in embryo way back then. And Lano Hawker, for me, uh, typifies that, because he was one of those early people who was part of that movement, trying things out. And so, you know, he... If you look at the pictures of him, he's wearing his great big furry costumes. And he's <laughs> working out what it is, you know, it, nobody's telling him what to do. He's, I think I'm right in saying that he actually went to, went to Harrods and bought, I mean, they're all, you know, he's pretty rich. He, he, he had money behind him. But he bought stuff from Harrods, some big furry boots, and then developed them himself and created these, what they call, fug boots, 
which were perfect for flight. And so he didn't go along with what other people were doing. He was absolutely all for creating. And, and, and also he comes at that early part of the war. For me, it's very exciting because, you know, dogfighting is still this idea of one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, his classic dogfight with Richthofen. And it's just, there's something so pure about it. You know, the two of them, you know, looking at each other's faces, getting into ever tighter circles. Richthofen won it unfortunately. But there is, you know, I, after that period, dogfights then became big melees and free-for-alls and different kind of thing. But this is, when people think about First World War dogfights, this is what they're thinking of. You know, when they were making Star Wars and, you know, whatever, the X-Fighters against the whatever, this is what they were basing it on. These sort of really early dogfights, man on man. And this is what captured the public's imagination, which turned these people into heroes. For me, Lano Hawker's a great, really is a great. I think he got his VC because he shut down, a, a, he, correct, a, um, everybody will correct me here, but I think he, he, fixed, <laughs> he fixed the Lewis gun, didn't he, to the to outside his cockpit uh, to get around not being able to shoot, shoot through the propeller. And um, he shot down two aircraft over each, I think, got a VC. And then you, you contrast that with, oh, this is for you, Pete, Mick Manock, um, <laughs> who, you know, didn't get a, a, a wasn't recognised for his victories until uh, a year after his death. So I think, and that's really interesting because picking up on what Josh says about Lano Hawker and you know the aircraft, bear in mind the speeds these aircraft are doing. They're just above the stall speed. Yeah. And you know they were throwing these things around, and if it worked, they'd try it again. But very often it didn't work. Yeah. You know there was a lot of lot of accidental deaths as well. My favourite one is the early bombing, which is get a grenade, fly your plane, find another plane, and try and throw the grenade at the well, other plane. Before that, darts, flechettes, yeah, <laughs> grenades, and then I mean, I, you know, Pete, in your collection, your personal IWM collection, fantastic story. A man called Rabliati, who was flying with um, Louis Strange, is another of my heroes, early man. And they did, you know, you you must know this story. This unbelievable story. They, they, they put a chute, basically a, an aluminium chute in the bottom of their plane. <laughs> and the idea was to shove bombs through. But what they didn't realize was that the air passing would actually sort of um, affect the, the chute. So it narrowed. So when they put a bomb through, it just jammed with the detonator poking out of the bottom. Ouch. It went, they tried to get it clear, couldn't do anything. Went over the side, couldn't do anything. So Rabliati just passed... Uh, a note back to Strange saying we're going to have to, we're going to die and we're going to have to land at the far end of the aerodrome. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that note? And he said, he said that, that Strange's face, he just, it was just a picture as he read this note. So they landed at the far end of the aerodrome and they landed on this, in this rough sort of corn and they were ready just to explode on landing, but they bounced and they bounced again, came to a halt and then they jumped out. And what had happened was that the detonator had been pulled out by the corn, the rough corn, when they landed, so it had made it safe. And, I mean, you know, this is exactly that kind of thing of trying it. If it works... Yeah, I've always do. believed it was wheat. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just check. In <laughs> Let me just... Josh is consulting his own book. Um, <laughs> Corn. 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 Peter Kins. Uh, 
There goes Peter. Peter's going to try and find a completely different source there to counteract it. Oh, oh that's, that's his book. Oh, yeah, this is like a book that's off. A, it's a fantastic book, there. Gary, I'm, Gary, in, I'm in trouble. Yeah, Gary, you're holding up Richard Van Emden's. You didn't write that. Uh, Peter Kinch, you love Richard. Strange, don't you? You like it? I do like but I, I want to make a point about, funnily enough, because it's something myself and Gary were talking about entre nous, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, we often speak in French. Um, <laughs> Gary's shaking and, his head as if to say, no, we bloody don't. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is that I, I entirely agree about uh, Hawker. Uh, and, and I love, you know, the story of his tactical instructions to his squadron when they first came out the Western Front. And I always used to tell the branch meeting when I do Western Front sessions, I'm going to read the whole of these instructions. You may find it dull, you know, and then you read it and it's attack everything. Lano Hawker. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he, he's great. But what's interesting, it's what we were talking about, Gary, is that that duel with Richthofen is not quite what it seems in one way, because it is two of the great men of the, you know, of the First World War aviation scene fighting each other. But one's in a DH-2 and the other's an Albatross D-1. Now, the problem with this is the DH-2 is a stopgap. It was great in the summer of 1916. It's not so bloody good in the autumn of, and late autumn of 1916. And, and Rick Doffin's airplane completely uh, outclasses him. It's very interesting that, that Josh mentioned the looking at each other going in very tight circles. That's because the only thing the DH2 could do better, and I know Josh knows this because it's in his book. Because uh, <laughs> that's where you stole it from. Well, I stole it from. <laughs> the only thing it can do better than the Albatross is go in circles. So, you know, he's got no choice. And this is something Gary was making a point about. Te we, we think of it as men, but it's technology as well. Gary, you, you were on about yeah, this. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the technology puts the, the pilots in the ascendancy. You know, you can see the periods and the development of the aircraft, and you can see the swing between the Germans and the British in terms of, of you know, how, how they're performing. So, for example, the Bristol fighter, introduced much later, of course, but starts to address the balance and put the British back in the, the ascendancy for a period of time. And then, of course, paraphrasing what you said, Josh, the, the words that Richthofen himself used about that duel were incredibly romantic. At one point, he, he describes, you know, <laughs> how he was being waved at, you know, by, uh, by Lana Solberg in the middle of this duel yeah. and, and references him as a gentleman. Well, he he said, how killed. do you do? As if to say, how do you do? As if to say, how do you do? And, and then he killed him. T7, I think, to, to 100 mile an hour. But, I mean, my, my old Astra goes faster than that. <laughs> I have to say that knowing British service personnel as I do from interviewing them, I don't think he was saying, how do you do, as he waved to him. Yeah, I'd be surprised if he was. I think you'll find it was a completely different gesture. Yeah. I was about to say, was he maybe not showing in the finger? Or two. I, was yeah. I was thinking two, but yes. He's waving with two fingers, yeah. <laughs> um, talking about guys who wrote doctrines that um, affected war, aerial warfare going forward, got, uh, my favourite is Bolker. I love him. Not only because he dances and sings and he's jolly and lovely, um, but he leaves behind just epic stuff for future pilots, doesn't he? Mm. Uh, yes. Uh, well, he, he writes the dicta. And he's the man who trained Richthofen. And Richthofen is a man that tra trains essentially by, by influence and by uh, example and the rest of it, the rest of the German Air Force. But 
Balka is the man who sets up the original principles. And, and it, it, in a way, it's bad because me and Josh agree with so much of this stuff because uh, we, we've worked from the same sources. But, I mean, it's not rocket science, but someone has to think of it. He uses the attributes of the Fokker Eindecker, the diving, uh, the ability to dive, shoot through the front, uh, through the, the propeller, or not through the propeller, to be more accurate, uh, to, uh, to come from behind, only attack, in, only attack one at a time on any individual target so you don't run into each other. And these are all later on repackaged by Richtop and, and by everybody else. But he comes up with most of it. Uh, uh, and, and, and they are the principles of aerial warfare uh, mm. for, for a long time. And uh, Josh, I know you talk about this in your book. Well, I, I mean, I, I find the, the different approaches of, of, of different, I mean, we'll get, get onto some of the aces, really, really interesting because you have, you have people like Volker who are thinking and are developing rules and effectively want to stay alive. So you've got, I mean, if you, if you take it to the British side, you've got these two, two you've got Mick Manick and you've got Albert Ball. So you've got Albert Ball, who's a kid um, and, uh, you know, brilliant pilot, wonderful pilot, wonderful ace. Um, but if you read his, the letters that he wrote back to, to his parents, he's a, he's, a, he's a child, he's a public school boy, um, writing about the water fights and what great sport they're having and getting his little patch of um, uh, garden going with seeds that grow quickly and all this kind of thing. Um, and he, he flies without any tactics whatsoever. He basically, he doesn't really have a chance in the long run because he just flies into the middle of a fight and tries to fire his way out. And it's very sad, actually, when you follow it. You, it's so clear what the, what the end is going to be. And then you've got someone like McManic, who's a bit older, a bit more canny, um, a much more sort of rounded individual, really. Somebody who I think is just amazing. Um, very political, very interesting. And once, he's not, a, he's not a natural flyer, but my God, he wants to live. And he really thinks about it. And he thinks about the best way of surviving. And he's also an inspiration to younger um, pilots because he teaches and he brings them, brings them in. And, and so, you, you know, we, 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 you talk about sort of Bolka and the beginning of the, and the dicta and the beginning of, of, um, of the rules. Well, you know, the, here are two very different pilots who view flying very, very differently. But tragically, both end up dead because that is how the aces tended to end up. Um, Josh, you and I have talked about... Um exploitation haven't we because mm. I mean, it is and you got people like Guinemet he is he should not be in the air by the time he dies isn't it right Pete uh no he shouldn't uh but uh, I, I mean I, I think that, that in particular about Manic yeah uh, uh Manic Edward who is <laughs> well uh, and arguably Rick Toffin and uh, yeah. well Rick Toffin had a bullet through he yeah. got his his head creased by a bullet I mean I'm breaking his own rules he just written in his will the week before you know a series of rules and there he goes breaking what well, oh, i find that just fascinating the way so many of these aces did die breaking their own rules because there was no way out well well manic sex tape you know uh, which is not well known but uh, uh it's 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 one of the great pieces of advice to everyone uh, always above seldom at the same level and never gary below especially never below gary you'll be squashed <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> oh pete <laughs> But, 
Right, my, right, my internet's about to go down. <laughs> <laughs> I like, where were you going with manic sex tape? I just well, that, that, well, that's his advice, always above yes. the importance of altitude. And yet, what, what was he killed doing? Yes, going down. Right, going down to have a look at the plane he'd shot down, of all things. Why? Uh, and and Actually, where was he? Genuinely, 600, I'd love to know. I mean, so many of these, uh, um, you know, McCudden turning back after uh, taking off, people doing what they knew they weren't meant to be doing. They'd known th their whole flying careers. They were breaking very basic rules, their own rules. Why do you think they were doing this? Why, why did uh, these people get to a stage where they... Where mental they incapacity. Well, I think, yeah, if you take uh, Manic as an example, I think... Uh, in the modern parlance, he's he's suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, and he should have been sent home. There's no buts or maybe's. McCadden's really interesting, Josh, because a really methodical man yeah. checked everything over and over and over again, and then turns back. That's that's really quite interesting. It is, but it? I, it is. But I think you know the the sex tape as as Pete puts it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Elena, yeah. are but, you writing or are you asleep? She's asleep. Okay. <laughs> I'm not asleep, but I'm, 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 I, am, I am listening intently and my eyes seem to have momentarily <laughs> fluttered while we're discussing. A lot of people's eyes flutter in Gary's direction. Yeah, they're doing. But um, if you take that comment about, you know, always above, mm. seldom on the level, that is pretty much the same mantra for all of the ACEs who had transferable skills, mm. you know, you couldn't transfer ball skills. He, he, he was, I think, Pete, in one of your books, you described him as a berserker, which is, you know, pretty, pretty accurate. Um, so I think that that mantra dictates what they do. But, you know, they're all living on the edge doing these things. You know, they're trying to give themselves advantage by... Mm. Coming up from behind, least dangerous, but they're all living on their nerves. Well, McCudden makes himself ill, doesn't he, with the altitudes he goes up to with no oxygen um, to get that advantage. There's really successful aces. They're kept at the front. They're kept at the front. They're totems. They're icons. And they're, they're not sent home. They're not given a break. And it seems to me that a lot of them just realise they're going to die. They are going to die. There's, 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 that, that's, that's the long and the short of it. The only thing left is they can decide when and how they die. And it, it's basically the only decision that's left to them. And I don't know, maybe it's very simplistic and it's just sort of cod psychology. But th there is an element there of, with Richthofen, you know, there he goes flying for a mile over enemy territory. What the hell is he doing? Is it, just that, is it just that, you know, he knows he is going to die. So he might as well choose the manner and the place of the time of it, because that's the only choice he, he, he still has. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it just has fascinated me endlessly. I think the age of them is significant, isn't it? You've already alluded to it. They're babies. These aren't men. I mean, they're... Well, Manic I mean, is Manic He is, but 30, yeah. McCudden's 23, and, and he looks old compared to the others. But you see, McCudden's been through the whole war. I mean, McCudden's an interesting one because he, you know, he, he came across with the Flying Corps in '14, and he's he's seen it from every angle. So yes, he's a young man, but he's also can you imagine how much you've aged in that time? Um, well, it's it's interesting because he, he's always treated as the the professional, as Gary said, the cold fish. You know, mm. the, you know the uh, 
not as popular in the mess as some of them, you know. Uh, but but the interesting thing is, in his diary or, or a letter, I can't remember which, but when he sent home uh, to, to do a bit of home service mm. in, I think, about March, February, March, 1918, March, uh, he burst into tears. You know, that is very un-McCudden-like. Mm. Uh, but yeah. the other thing, though, is that a lot of them... I know we say that they should be at home. Manic wanted to go back. He wanted to go out to 73 Squadron, uh, and then 85 Squadron. Um, Rick Duffin wanted to go back. And a lot of them get target fixated in the sense of they start aiming. And if you look at the last things uh, uh, McCudden wrote, the last thing he wrote in his book is that he'd get to 100. Perhaps he'd beat old Manic, you know, old Rick Duffin. But you see, but Manic wanted to go back but only because he couldn't bear life at home and sort of normality at home. I mean, he was, he, he was crying. He, he went to see his old friend Ailes, wasn't it? And, you know, he just burst into tears and, and couldn't, couldn't deal. He, he, could ma- he could just about manage at the front, but as soon as he went back and the pressure was off, you know, the, it, it just got to it. So, yes, he did want to go back, but that's only because he couldn't bear life on the home front. Um, it was too difficult mentally. They're, all, to they're all trapped, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Mm. There's also, I mean, like, I've got mates that serve now that they hate being home on leave. They can't bear it because their mates are still out there. Yes. Well, that, they, they reference this. Mm. But it's, also, it's also the journey, isn't it? At the start of this, I mean, let's, let's think about what air power was there for. Hang on, is this some sort of reality show? Are we on it a was, journey? Yeah. <laughs> it was... The, on our journey. <laughs> it was for supporting the artillery. That's, you know, that's essentially what it was for. The scouts were viewed as individuals who could make a difference. They were held up culturally dependent on whether they were German or British. And they'd been on that journey. And frankly, the later parts of the war, when they pretty much all die, um, they're not making individual differences anymore. It's not about them anymore. Mm. Um, and I think... Yeah, the journey. Thanks, Pete. I think, um, you know, psychologically, that's one hell of a journey. And I think that, you know, if you take Rick Toffen and Manor, their, their countries had a duty to use them in a different way. They could have held them up as, uh, as icons of, of the country. They could have used them for training, uh, but they didn't. And, and perhaps they needed to be saved from themselves. That's something, yeah, definitely with Guinnemi. I mean, they were in actively trying to do that, weren't they? And he buggered off in his plane to get away from them. But um, what do you make of the fact that we do not, it, it starts to happen a bit towards the end, but we do not do what the Germans do and the French do with their aces, which is put them up on this mad pedestal. I mean, it happens to ball, doesn't it? But very rarely are our guys sort of be keen on becoming these air celebrities um, and worship by the whole country. It's just not something we go in for here, is it? Well, really? I, I, I quite like that because I think, you know, the reason they were doing it, or the authorities were doing it, is they wanted to keep the emphasis on the people who were doing, as Gary says, you know, the real work. You know, they, as, 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 as Gary says, you know, they weren't, they weren't there. What's the point of sending people up to shoot each other out of the skies? Absolutely no point in doing that. Um, it has no effect. The point was to do reconnaissance, to do artillery observation, to do contact patrols, to do all the stuff that was in aid of, you know, the, until 1918, there was no independent air force. It, they, it was a branch of the Flying Corps, was a branch, a corps in the army, and it was there to do work for the army. 
I know that Reese Davids, he um, is mortified when his picture gets in the paper, isn't he? Yeah. Um, he's pissed off, wants to know who did it. And isn't McCudden the same? McCudden yeah. tells his family not to give it. them a photo. Leif Robinson quite likes it. When he's, when he's, um, when he's you know, shoots down the bag of gas, as a lot of people on the Western Front complained, he got the Victoria Cross for shooting down the Zeppelin. Yeah, let's talk about him. Let's talk about not fighter pilots, because I know Pete wants to give his little speech about how the important people are the people doing the donkey work. Those two have just done it. I, yeah. I entirely agree with them. Pete, you're so right with what you've just not said. Pete, <laughs> <laughs> but no, Leif Robinson's really interesting, because he, you know, he, he, yeah. he, he was on um, home defence, and he was the first person to shoot down a Zeppelin, basically because he had um, you know, the, the, the ammunition to do it um, for the first time. And... Uh, and then he was heralded. I mean, he t was turned into this incredible hero. And he writes a letter home saying, babies have been named after me and hats have been named <laughs> after me. And he's obviously... <laughs> Pete, put that mucky thought away. <laughs> Fifteen babies named after me in the last week. And, 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 and so he, uh, you know, he, he, he does seem to quite enjoy it. But then his reward is to be sent out to the Western Front where he doesn't really know what he's doing and he flies a Bristol fighter for the first time and he's shot down almost immediately because he doesn't really understand no one does yet but doesn't understand what it's what it's capable of and, Josh, and then as, look at what happens you know, to him as well because he's famous when they get exactly, hold of him exactly Go on, Pete. well no it's what it what Josh is saying is that is the famous first use of the Bristol Scout and it's typical of the British I mean do they send out the first six British Bristol Scouts from the experienced scout leader uh, on a fairly safe mission, or do they send it with someone who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing? I leave Robinson. Yeah. And why don't we send him over Richter from Zairfield? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what will happen. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> they've all been shot down. Oh no! It is. It's and, amazing. And yes, what happens to Leif Robinson is 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 very sad. That happens to a lot of people. Yeah. What about Immelman? We haven't talked about him. I can be. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bulker's better. I think Bulker's better. I'm more, I think Bulker's a sort of nicer individual. You know, I got all these stories of Bulker going to visit people in hospital, and you know, all I remember about Immelman is that people didn't trust him because he was a vegetarian. Well, that's it. Because well, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> his mum was some weird. Because his dad died of some weird illness, didn't he? And then uh, I think it was a weird illness. But the mum went on a massive health kick, and that they were forced to be vegetarians and do like this weird culty. Like a bit like Pete, really. <laughs> Pete's on the Immelman diet, aren't you? I, I have the highest respect for Immelman. I, I shouldn't have joked about him. He and Bolker together are responsible. Uh, Bolker was more the brains, and he worked on it more to become the dictator. Uh, Immelman was killed earlier on, mm. you know. So, and they removed Bolker and sent him to the Eastern Front to wander around for a bit, uh, out of the way, because that's the risk. Going back to what you were talking about earlier, you make them the sex god symbol of the German empire, you know, the epitome of every, you know, the, the German hero, and then they get killed. And Immelman was killed. He was shot down. You know, they always try and say they shot their own propeller off, but that's, that's, that's why there's so much mystery about Ace's deaths. Because you're not, they're not allowed to be just shot down. So Immelman had to shoot his own propeller off. Why they should think that's better than being shot down by an FE2B or whatever it was, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even, you know, going back to Manic. Apparently, Manic carried a, a, a pistol because he was terrified of, you know, burning to death. And yet, 
you know, when Richtofen died, he apparently was jubilant in the mess, you know, and, yeah. uh, about him burning all the way down. Mm. Sizzling. He talked about people sizzling and yeah. sizzle, sizzle, wonk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what'll happen to you on your next patrol, Gary. <laughs> Thanks. But that's PTSD. I mean, you, yeah. can, you can absolutely see that he's he's manic. I mean, he's manic and he's manic. He's 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 um he's he's absolutely you know he's up. He's down. He's he's all over the place. He's he's helping people. He's he's fighting. He's yeah, uh, and you, you 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 don't need to be a psychologist to see something is something is very very wrong with him. He was nervy at the start, and he was ne- he was very nervy at the end. Yeah. Is I think. Uh, but I mean, current... McCudden, you see, McCudden never seemed bothered. McCudden mm. was the cold professional one, but as I said, towards the end, he was showing signs, and he made a fatal mistake. Although Alex Revel and Josh and I. I speak for Josh here. We're not really aviation historians. We are generalists who happen to have an interest in a military aviation. Uh, Alex Revel, who's a, a, an absolute master of this, says he'd got the wrong carburetor fitted to his SC5A. There are guys that do a lot of quiet work. Uh, Richard Maybury, when it comes to the, the mad idea of trying to strap on uh, bombs to SC5As, <laughs> stop using that hand gesture. Honestly, you're like a five-year-old. An old. An, you're like an oversexed teenager, Pete. I'm not. To start drinking beer again and <laughs> mellow you back out. I, uh, I, yes. I believe him when he says he's not, by the way. Yeah. So there are people like Richard Mabry, aren't there, who um, they're not, they're doing lots of development work and they're not as remembered. I mean, but Mabry was an ace in his own right. Uh, James McCudden, the only time he ever flew off um, using the kind of language like I shot him down, I killed him, was when he was avenging Mabry's death the green tail guy before that it was always i shot down the machine i killed the i took a german airplane out of the sky he would switch himself off from the fact that there was a person in it um, but maybury did a lot of work on bombing i know that um and there's um, lena barlow as well in 56 squadron hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm going to bring up two people um, that most people probably haven't heard of. Um, uh, Donald Lewis and Baron James. These are the two people who basically came up with the clock code for artillery observation. Oh, yes. yes. Now, you know, here's something amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, you know, artillery observation obviously was something that they were, they were trying from very early on in the war, but it was very difficult to do using flares and, 
And then they had the wireless, but how do they do? And they came up with this brilliant, incredibly simple idea. Perhaps we could ask Gary to explain it for us. Yeah, you could do that, Peter. So it involves a sheet <laughs> laid out on the floor. Yeah. So it, well, it involved a sort of perspex sheet. It, it, you had a clock coat, you had a clock face with the numbers uh, all around the, the diameter. And then you had these concentric circles and laid out over the, a map. And so the pilot would basically be in wireless contact, Morse code contact with the battery. And he'd fly in a figure of eight between the battery and the target. And the, the, the battery would fire and he would see where the shell landed. And then using the clock code, whatever it was, B5, he would report that back to the battery. And then within, it depended, you know, maybe 10, 15 corrections, the battery would hit the target. And then he would say, okay. He could wireless, send wireless message to the battery. They couldn't send a message to him. So they had to use big sheets. And, but it was so clever and so simple that even when they had wireless telephony and they could, they could, in theory, speak, there was no point speaking because they could do it so simply and so accurately this way. And these two men, Lewis and James, came up with all this and were both killed doing it. And the, to me, those are heroes. You know, those, those, and no one remembers their names. Well, it's Chumley before the war with the night flying. He's the only, I mean, night flying in World War I, you've got to be a lunatic. But he was doing it in March 1914. He's up there. Oh, there's some lights down there. I wonder where the hell I am. With three because squadron. Because all these things were done. You know, people say, oh, the, the flying call went out to, to, to France without a clue what it was going to do. That's a bit disingenuous. You know, there was an, they knew the sort of things that could be done, the reconnaissance and the artillery observation. What they didn't know was whether they'd be taken seriously or whether they'd be any good at it. Mm -hmm. And it was in the first few weeks you know that amazing period i found an amazing thing in the national archives you know you know the uh reconnaissance people would fill out their little forms and those forms would then be um looked at on the ain on the 13th of september there's this one form that says germans building trenches on the 13th of september 1914 and you look at that and think oh my god that's where it's basically it the day after they started that's that's where it began and of course the, it Brit was the air the british it, it was it, it was the air that, that, that spotted this and that's when they started to realize god it's important these they really you know this is useful and we can utilize this and it's got a future um, people still don't comprehend um properly i don't think the first blitz either because it seems so little and silly compared to obviously world war Two. Uh, but there are still plenty of people were killed by bombs. And you're talking about a world where aeroplanes didn't exist 10 years before. And now bombs are falling out of the sky. It has got to have been absolutely mind-blowing. If you ask people who live in London, oh, where is the blitz damage in London? They'll normally say Cleopatra's Needle. Um, they'll point out things that actually were First World War mm. blitz damage. And people don't even realise that there was bombing during the first world war and people were were sheltering in the tubes in the first world war it's you know it's all there in a i liked uh, one, one of the things i i, I liked was uh, i can't remember whether i read it or it, i think it's on an early oral history that i heard i didn't do the interview but a bloke was describing trying to fly a b2c or bearing to b2 anyway uh, trying to find a german aircraft at night <laughs> he said it was <laughs> 
He said it was like looking for a black cat in the Albert Hall at night. Yeah, so there's no light in the plane. Um, the, how? Just try and comprehend for people a picture of why you've got to be an absolute lunatic. Because effectively, you've got no navigational equipment in the aircraft. You've got none of your instruments are lit up. And, and you know, the early pushers were basically flying baskets. So you're up in a basket. <laughs> Who's a basket? <laughs> I may have misheard a bit of that. <laughs> uh, we haven't mentioned Voss yet. He was trained by Richtofen. When Richtofen joined or took command of Jastra 11, I'm sure Josh will back me up on this, uh, that the, the, the pilots in Jastra 11 hadn't shot a single plane down. Mm -hmm. And then Richtofen arrived. He brought with him uh, Bolker's dicta, the, the rules, how you do it, come from behind, you know, all the rest of it, out of the clouds, out of the sun, whatever. He brought that to it. And Voss was one of those pilots that Richtofen taught. So Voss employed Rick Doffin's methodology, uh, or Bolker's methodology, if you want to be, you know. And, 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 and so did the other pilots. Uh, and you've got Schaefer, Alman Roder, yeah. uh, his brother. What's his brother called? I've got to call him Ted. But I Lothar, isn't it? <laughs> Lothar, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Ted will and, do. And, and the point was that... Um, Voss is just one of those. Now, the, 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 the reason, because he was killed in such unusual circumstances in the sort of taking on five or six of the finest pilots of 56 Squadron, which, you know, uh, and Reese David shot him down in the end. People tend to suspect he was drunk or something like that. I think he just made a series of fatal mistakes. And probably he was at the end, like Josh said, he was probably at the end of his... It takes tenor. one lapse in concentration, just, doesn't it? Just make one mistake. And if you're fighting McCudden, Reese David... Maybury, Maybury, yeah. and 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 he sh he 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 severely damaged two or three of those aircraft before he was eventually shot down. And I've always loved Reese David's thing, which shows what an unpleasant little shit he was. Oh, leave him my lawn. He's my boy. He, he says at the end of it, "I only wish I didn't have. I only wish he couldn't have been. You know, he wasn't." No, he killed. says, "I only wish I could have shot, brought him down alive." Yeah, well, why carry on shooting at him when he's fluttering at the thing with no motor power? Shoot <laughs> <laughs> right, never stop firing. And, and, and if you question it, I because mean, Reese Davids was a berserker, he was McCudden, an Albert Ball. McCudden watched him do it, you know. Yeah, um, but because he's many... another Albert Ball, he's another one that's past the time he should have gone home on a home establishment, and he's cracking only, up. To be fair, Reese Davids was only out there a month or two, so. You, you know, <laughs> He'd been out there more than six months at the time. All right. But, you know, I mean, they can't send you home all the time. Uh, yeah. the, you know, uh, uh, I, don't, I, I thought he went out there. Oh, yeah, that is six months. My yeah. maths is dreadful. Gary's continually. because you're old. Yeah, it will be that. Um, but, people, when we, so we were talking online before um, we started this, and people were flagging Udette. Mm. But you could, do, you could do all of them. I mean, yeah. it, it's, I mean, I keep coming back to what were they there for? Um, you know, when Trenchard was appointed in, uh, uh, I think, August 1915, he was very, very clear about the role mm. of the RFC. And, you know, the, the scouts were there to facilitate. Yeah, you were just yeah. there to stop yeah. the, the workhorses yeah. getting shot out of the sky because yeah. we need their photos, we need them to bomb effectively, yeah. we need their artillery spotting. And for the most part, the Germans were outnumbered and there was no bloody obligation on them to engage. And very often they, they wouldn't, you know, they would leave. I bloody would if I saw someone. <laughs> so it, I, I think 
you know, that's why cult- you never won a VC, Gary. Well, there's a lot of reasons I never won a VC. <laughs> um, but, uh, not, not being in combat would be one of them. Yeah, that would be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you count biting the ear off an officer. <laughs> Thanks, now there's a story. <laughs> it's not true, sadly. Well, it is. It is now. The internet doesn't lie. I try and cover for you, Gary. <laughs> it's supposed to wait till after I'm dead, Peter. Remember? You, um, Josh mm. Hughes. Is it Hughes? No, not Hughes Onslow. McKenny Hughes. McKenny oh. Hughes. You love him, don't well, you? Well, I, I, I like a lot of the characters. You come across these characters, and a, a lot of them are people who don't necessarily. They're, they're, you know, the, the Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service had a certain number of people in it who, who basically weren't military in any way whatsoever, and they always stand out. These sort of he's he's older. He's an <laughs> Gary's raising his hand. <laughs> he's, an, he's an observer. And he has no desire to be a pilot. Most observers wanted to become pilots. He, this man, McKinney, had no interest at all in becoming a pilot. Uh, and he had very, very cynical and very detached and very, very funny. And you read his diaries and you, you, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to read them because he's just so dark. He's another one like Manic. He's older, isn't he? He's 30. He's older. He's yeah. Older. Um, and he's got really no time for a lot of the people that he meets, uh, and, and I find that, I like the characters. Have you come across a man called Gordon Shepard? No. Shepard was a pilot at the very beginning of the, of the war. In fact, he, he reached- Are you going to mention cabbages? <laughs> cabbages? Is that him? Oh, I think- No, but I, I'm- She's intrigued now. We'll come back to the cabbages. Well, Shepard, Shepard carried out uh, a, a lot of stuff at the beginning of the war. He was actually, he had, the, the, the month before, in July 1914, he had actually taken a, a boat across to Germany to pick up uh, arms, armaments from Germany to bring back to Ireland, to Hoth. These were the rifles that were used during the 1916 Rising. And he was working for the Irish Republicans. But he was also a totally loyal pilot in the, in the Royal Flying Corps. And you find these strange stories, and there seemed to be a lot of them in the flying services, a lot of these odd bods, odd people who, you know, have, have a certain something to them seem to be in the flying services. So the fact that, the, you know, the 1916 rebels arms were brought over by a serving officer in the Royal Flying Corps, when you find this, you just think, my God. Pete Kings, you've been looking up the cabbages. Well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't Gordon Shepherd, it was Gordon Bell. And he, oh. he, land, he landed a Bristol bullet, turned it up on its nose and, uh, Popham, uh, the uh, quartermaster general, Popham said, "Oh, Bell, where's your machine?" And he said, <laughs> "Bell turned around and said, over in that." He had a stammer, but 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 blasting field of fucking cabbages. <laughs> the same man crash landed his plane, well, Bell, in a in a tree, and someone and 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 someone said, uh, uh, "What is someone?" And somebody sort of came up to him and asked him about it. And said, you know, are you leaving? And he said, say, yes, yeah, that's how I always suffer for fucking land. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know another real character is uh, Harvey Kelly, the first pilot to oh. land. He's brilliant. He, uh, so he cheats, doesn't he, to become the first pilot to land. But I, my favourite anecdote about him is always uh, in the mess, apparently, having a row with some other pilots about the effectiveness of tanks and how good they were going to be. And apparently him crawling along the floor while they pelted him with coal so he could prove his point pete's now waving a picture but yeah that harvey kelly cheated brilliant. didn't he, 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 cut a he on the roof. 
In that picture, he's smoking a cigarette by a haystack next to an aeroplane. With, with, with leaking fuel. With leaking yeah. fuel. <laughs> yeah, so, so, he, picture, so he's landed. That's in Yorkshire. He's on his way down. Yeah, he's on his way down there, yeah. And he, uh, but, uh, the story about him is that he, I never fucking understood this. Sorry, I never understood this. He used to fly, it, he supposedly used to fly with a potato and a reel of cotton. Do, do you remember this? Oh, <laughs> people said to him, what, "There's what something mind, amusing about an Irishman flying with a potato." But yeah, carry on. Oh. And he said, "Because because uh, if I land behind enemy lines, these will prove particularly useful." What's he talking about? Hang on, let's pause for a moment. A potato and a, do you, and a, a piece reel of, of a reel of cotton. So he can repair his uniform. <laughs> a reel of potato. cotton and a potato. And he's Irish, so he's going to make vodka. He'll make vodka. Or throw the potato at any hostile people. It's never made. And then it. hang himself. With the, no, I don't know. That's why I love so many of these people. They just don't make sense. They're, they're and on familiar. the darker side, there's one of my one of my all time favourites. And this man does not share my political beliefs at all. You you'll have heard of him, Josh. And that's uh, Rudolf Berthold. I know. Uh, I mean, he was a maniac. Um, I mean, he was he, he did a career since uh, 1916. But he'd been shot down and he'd had his arm, his right arm, smashed to bits, you know. And there was bits of bone, what's it, bone splinters are forcibly pushing themselves out. Uh, he, uh, he used to fly, he managed to get himself back flying, he would fly one-handed and still shot down another ten planes until he crashed again. He was <laughs> doped up to his eyeballs on laudanum cocaine or heroin, and I don't know which it is, and his biography, which not... It's not an autobiography. You'd be surprised to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and he would be. He would be. He was famous for screaming in the air. You know, they, they always said you could hear it above the engine, which is bollocks. Of course, you couldn't. Yeah. But but he was an amazing character, and and he he, he shot down. He tries to go. Well, he, he shot down again, and, and and tries to go back, and he gets told to fuck off home, basically. Uh, and uh, and and of course he's finished up, and he's the one who was in the lovely Fry Corps people fighting uh -huh, the yeah. workers, and uh, he was killed by uh, lefties. Um, uh, and the the great rumor was he was strangled with his own Paul Merritt. But I believe that uh, academics have disproved this, which is why academics are bastards. Because it was yeah, a great story. that's a great story. Yeah, um, much rather have been well, strangled. You know, Rob, you've got you've got eccentrics like Robert Lorraine, who was the oh. squadron commander of Forty One Squadron. Um, and Robert Lorraine, he was, so he was a, an actor, so, he, so quite strange to begin with, a West End actor. And he, one of these, he couldn't wait to get into the flying services. He, he used to, or just one thing he used to do, he apparently used to sit on uh, a squadron in, in, a, in an aircraft, just making engine noises, sort of pretending he would fly. <laughs> um, uh, but he also used to put on plays in the squadron. I just love this story. And he, he got George Bernard Shaw down to the squadron put on one of Shaw's plays, an anti-war play, and Shaw was watching it, and all of the, the, the officers and men were in this play, and I mean, I just beg his belief, you know, that they were flying and rehearsing, and then in the evening putting on this play. Shaw was watching it, and Shaw was laughing all the way through, even though it wasn't a comedy, and one of the officers said to him, you seem to be laughing a lot. He says, yes, if I knew it was that bad, I would never have written it. <laughs> Do you know my favourite Bolker anecdote is uh, a fact, you see, you know they were all motorbike fiends, weren't they? Because that's how they yeah. weeded out on all sides guys who were going to be technically minded for flying. An academic and, would say all. All, and I'd say, 
there's a hand gesture going on there. Uh, but yeah, so he uh, had a motorbike. He convinced his parents while he was lying to them about what he was doing for a living. They thought he was still a wireless person. Um, he had this motorbike to get to and from work. And uh, he got done for rampant speeding, at which point his argument is he was completely... Yeah. rampant speeding he was indignant and he said but i always drove through the villages like a gentleman which i love <laughs> but then you also had the real professionals people like robert you remember robert smith barry mm-hmm. you know he he was yes. the he, he came up with the um the, you know the gospel tube and the all the ideas of spinning how to recover from a spin he came up with all these you know, fantastic ways of staying alive. Um, no, it's still in use. And uh, which is what? Well, it, it's still in use. The gospel. All oh, the, 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 the oh, yeah. His his system of learning to fly is still pretty well what they use. Yeah, I believe. Nineteen sixteen and the Avro five hundred four Ks, wasn't it? And yes. and, and um, you know, so. I always preferred the K variant. The K. It is a K. <laughs> is that was that a statement for the academics, Pete? <laughs> always, you always prefer it. Fi- I think you'll find that there aren't any academics listening to this. No, because you've you've basically offended <laughs> you've them all so them all, much yeah. that they won't come anywhere near you. I don't think there's anyone listening to this, is there? <laughs> no, just uh, a <laughs> leader's not even listening. I love the way she logs on and falls asleep. What do you want us to do? This has been reasonable. No, no, I'm here. I'm here, just my feet are up and I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and I'm, I'm promoting our talk. In your dreams? <laughs> no, no, no. If you go onto Twitter, you will see yourselves tagged. I'm promoting how exciting and how revolutionary <laughs> this talk is for me. Well, let's not go mad. But yeah, it's not it's, it's moments. <laughs> I'd like to make one point about the Aces because, I, yeah. because I'll forget. And that is, to my mind, their work was done by, by 1918. And most of the stuff had been invented. Balker, uh, uh, mm. Manock, Richtofen, all these people. I mean, because it's not rocket science, is it? Creep up from behind or out of a cloud, out of the sun. Uh, come from the direction they're not expecting. Don't attack too many. Use out. Stay always above. Always above is hardly rocket science, is it? Is the uh, last great innovation the strafing from the air, Pete? Uh, and that's a sign that aces aren't that important. When you hear that Udet and Richthofen were, were strafing the British during the German offensive, yes. uh, the spring offensive, Richthofen and Udet uh, are flying uh, 20 feet above the ground, strafing uh, British troops as they retreated. Because mm. what's really important is the ground offensive. And, uh, I, I'm not, I, and this is when you find out who, who's important and who's not. I think you could argue it's even earlier than that, Pete. I've been out of my depth oh, no. for the last five minutes because I know everything I know about air war from Peter and pre-lockdown, he asked for the bag packet back. But <laughs> th- things like the deflector plates, you know, Roman uh, Garros, uh, all that sort of stuff's happening early because it bloody well has to. Mm. Uh, so I think you, you could argue that probably bloody April uh, would mark the end of it. Um, once the nature of dogfighting changed, once it became less, you know, man against man and became much more of sort of melee in the sky, yeah. it's very hard to pick people mm. out or, to, you know, it becomes... Although, yeah, by the time you get to September 17 and it's like there's 25, 30 aircraft up but, there. But the great aces, their main thing was to ambush you. That yeah. was their thing. They, I mean, Manic didn't get in dogfights. 
and nor did Rick Duffin until the end. Uh, what they did was d- surprise someone. Yeah. But most pilots, Josh is a, as ever entirely right. Most pilots, their experience of air war would be a large dogfight, but the aces don't get involved. No, McCudden had a thing about lurking at their in their blind spot, didn't he? Well, and 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 using height mm. and, and and attacking formations, and if things go wrong, Rick getting out of it. Rick Do- if Rick McCudden Do- gets you, it's because he's down from above and he shot you down before you've even known he's there. And the same with Rick Duffin. That's what they always yeah. say. And, and, and the pilot who uh, the pilot who survives, his name's gone out of my head, Josh might remember it, in Rick Duffin's last flight in April uh, 1918. Wow. Uh, I've forgotten his name. He's a young, young, inexperienced pilot. And he says, if I'd known it was Rick Duffin, I'd have died of fright, never mind the bullet. Yeah. But he was incredibly lucky because normally... Wilfred Rick May. Duffin, Wilfred May. That's it, Wilfred May. Mm. Normally, May would have been dead. Because the, when Rick, he hadn't seen Rick Doffin come in, yeah. of course he hadn't. And he'd have been dead in that first minute. Why Rick Doffin then follows him? Yeah. But does it make a difference when Rick Doffin's dead? And my answer is not, because other aces stood up to replace him. Aces, mm-hmm. he, he trained. So Alman Roder, until he, yeah. he's killed in a crash, he takes over. Uh, uh, Bert, Berthold, uh, the, the, you know, the individual aces aren't as important. And, and, and you're entirely right, uh, Josh, numbers. And, and Gary's point about technology, the technology doesn't really change after late 1917. Mm. We're fine, SE5s and camels. And you can say the SOP with dolphins better, but is it, is it much better? Or is it just much of a muchness? Yeah. And the Fokker D7 is, is probably the best scout in the yeah. in, you know in this in the first no, world no there's no there's no game changer like there was early in the war so no, it's not like the the uh, the, the the albatross d1 is yeah. it no i mean it's a bit faster and it's you know it's a good diver and it's you know but did it, you still not... get um game changers with things like the gothers though well i mean you know if, if you look at the bombing of, of of britain i mean the gothers were um, you know, they kind of took over from the Zeppelins, really. So, I mean, it was, yeah. that was a game changer in that sense. Mm. Um, and that's mid, well, again, still, that's mid 17, isn't it? Mid 17, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, that, well, I think you could argue that the game changing there was what it did to the psyche, you know, for the Second World War. The bombers will always get through. Yeah. So, you could argue that the Gothers actually set that up yeah. in terms of how the British public certainly were thinking about the bomber. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. If you look at some, I mean, I've been recently looking at, uh, at some of these documents, you know, people anticipating what the, the next war would be. So in the 1920s, uh, there are cabinet committees talking about, you know, the level of bombing. Jesus, I mean, they, they really, first of all, they thought the, the enemy would be the French. So all through the 20s and early 30s, they're talking about... <laughs> we always sing that. <laughs> well, the French, you know, it, it, to be fair, default. given the thousand years that preceded it, it wasn't a bad guess. No, it? it's, it's our default position. So now Germany's apparently out of the game. You know, what, what are the French going to do? They really, I mean, they, the, the figures of what they thought were going to happen on the first day of bombing. Wow. I don't have them to hand, but they're, it's massive. They thought thousands and thousands of people would die in the first day. And that was, as you say, the experience that they'd had from the First World War. Um, yes. Guys, thanks so much. I reckon we've given people stuff to think about and names to go look up as well. Um, Peterkins, your book on the air, well, you've done lots of books on the air war. The one you've been quoting from is Tumult in the Clouds, which I think I was still at primary school when you wrote that. And I know you don't agree with all of it anymore, but you wrote that one and tell everyone your other ones. That was with Nigel Steele. Uh, um, I don't know. Bloody April. Bloody April, which should have been called. 
Bloody it's April gone. should have been called. Uh, Ace is falling. <laughs> Ace is falling to get the Peter Kins basically wrote it so many books. It should have been called Up the Arras, because that was what I wanted to be called. He's oh, written so um, many air war books that his publisher divorced him. Um, so you can get, there's Some Success, which is a nice little one. You've got Bloody April. Uh, the best one, I think, is Ace is Falling, which is about 1918. And that was how we met PT, because then they made Time Team about it. And that's right. You, me and Josh were all on it. And that's oh, why cool. Josh is stored on my phone as Whippersnapper Levine, because someone had a strop about young people telling him about... Um, Air War, and I remember Josh was just really excited that someone thought he was young. But Josh, tell, every, <laughs> tell everyone about your Air War book. Uh, it's called uh, On a Wing and a Prayer. No, no, Fighter <laughs> Heroes. It's got two titles, hasn't it? This is the problem. Yes, Fighter Heroes of World War One. But can I say, first of all, Peter's books are brilliant, and also there are two books I really genuinely urge people to read. Oh, Cecil Lewis. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, Cecil Lewis, Sagittarius Rising, which is fantastic it's uh that's his experience of and he got an oscar for writing pygmalion didn't he the yes, guy can write the members of the we could have talked about spoken about him because he's yeah more but, amusingly but because he was six foot four and wedging him into one of those yeah. little planes would have been highly comedy so sagittarius rising is just beautifully written yeah and, and he was 56 squadron mm-hmm. uh, and the other book i urge people to read is wonderful is called wing victory by victor yates and he was um, uh, a, a camel pilot in 1918, did a lot of that ground strafing. And it's a novel, but based entirely on his own experience. You know, it's funny, it, Josh. I never got past the appalling anti-Semitism in the first chapter. I was going to make a joke there, and I'm not going to, because this is actually being recorded. He was a fascist. He, became, he was yeah. one of those people that came out of the war and became a fascist in the 30s. You've just got to... Get past it. Get past that. Mm. and see that as uh, something of its time and get through to the human story of how he survived and how he got through that 1918 period. Because again, he writes beautifully and it's an amazing story. You and five years, in, <laughs> five years in the Royal Flying Corps as well, which is James McCudden's. Um, because of it, McCudden starts as a mechanic um, and ends up being a pilot and ends up being an ace um, and then ends up dying. But the book, it, it's really well written. And, and, that, and that's a, a wonderful because, it, like I said before, you know, it goes from the very beginning, from, from going over to France right at yeah. the start. Where and getting the, glass in his heard, eye. I remember and, he heard the, the, the French people shouting, Vive long le terre, and he didn't understand. Live long and tear. Yeah, he didn't understand. Yeah, it. and, and he got glass in his eye on the retreat and had cocaine put in his eye. Well, that's how I got hooked. Right Ooh. on that oh. note, Gary, rec- have you got any me- re- recommendations? No, no, no. I think <clears throat> I was going to say every book that Josh said. So I'm struggling now, but you should look out for my forthcoming book. It's going to be called And Then the Pole Broke. This is a history of military latrines. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be writing that with Pete because if there's one World War One historian, there's there's not another one as full of shit as Pete is. So, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> I love you, Pete Kins. Never speaking to any of you again. <laughs> yes, you are. You're going on holiday with us in September. Where oh, are you wow. going? What, Galilee, you you're not coming, Alina. You're Polish. You're not allowed in Galilee. <laughs> You'd fall asleep what? on the first five minutes of the trek anyway. <laughs> no, I'll just wander off and then you'll have to come and find me in a bar or something. Oh. <laughs> she thinks there's a bar. There's a bar. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a bar at the foot of the booth. 
Yeah. Fine, I'll bring my own bottle of vodka and, and drink by myself on a cliff or something. It's okay, it's fine. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking about Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Duncan Barrett all about the Channel Islands in World War II. Really fascinating and unique take on the conflict. Don't forget you can become a History Hack patron by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com for as little as a dollar a month. It would help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, which we would dearly like to do. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.